Welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I sat down with social psychologist Dr. Benjamin Carney. Ben is a professor of social psychology at UCLA. He is an expert in interpersonal relationships and marriage, and his research examines the effects of stress on marital processes, divorce rates in military marriages, intimate relationships among youth and young adults, and marriage in low-income populations. One interesting takeaway I had from my conversation with Ben is the misconception that fixing communication skills will always improve a relationship. Improving communication skills is the goal of countless relationship interventions, and Ben described how we have to be cautious in the assumption that you can just throw couples into a communication workshop and expect the relationship to do a complete 180. I was also fascinated to hear Ben argue that focusing on managing the different threats within a marriage is more important than the selection process of choosing the perfect partner. He emphasizes how the social and economic environment sets up barriers to relationship success and how things like job flexibility and support in childcare can have a profound impact on the strength of a marriage over time. I don't disagree with Ben's perspective, but given the low success rate of marriages in the U.S. and the variety of satisfaction levels in those marriages, I believe that the selection process deserves a lot of attention. In terms of the numerous external influences on marriage, I think that it's crucial for individuals to factor all these potential stressors into how they choose a long-term partner. If you focus too much on things like attractiveness, sense of humor, and ignore things like how you resolve conflict together, you may be setting yourself up for failure. If you're currently married or you're thinking of getting married, I highly recommend listening to what Ben has to say. Enjoy. Okay, I'm here with Benjamin Carney. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Uh, So your work... Your research work focuses on change and stability within intimate relationships. Um, But let's, let's start with, let's start with the choosing process. So if you had to compare the importance of choosing the right partner versus already having solid relationship or conflict resolution skills, is, is it even possible to say that one of those is more important than the other? Um, I would certainly not give up either one of them, but I I do think that choosing a partner is really important. The problem is we don't really always get to choose our partners. I mean, we we do to an extent, no one forces us to choose a long-term relationship, but the partners that we end up with are often a function of who's around at the time that we're choosing partners. So, our, you know, our, our context, our social contexts play a large role in the partners that we have available to us. Um, so we can choose from within the options that we're given and that, that, that are available to us. But it does matter. Of course it matters and it matters a lot. Um, so, so what types of things, if you had to kind of describe 
the most important uh, traits or or just things in a partner that would predict long-term relationship success? Yeah. Uh, are, what, are, what are a couple of those? Well, there's a lot of research on this. In fact, this is where research on marriage began in the 1930s. The very first scientific studies of marriage asked exactly the question that you asked, which is what kind of people, what, what enduring qualities of people um, are the most important for predicting long-term marital outcomes? And this is, and, and one study was published in 1987, followed couples from the time that they were engaged in the 1930s for 40 years. So they had a sample of engaged couples and they studied all sorts of things about those couples. They studied their backgrounds and their personality traits. And they, they didn't even ask people about their own personality traits. They asked five of each of those individuals' friends to rate their personalities. So you got like a sense from outside what these people were like. And then they put it all in a statistical hopper and said, which of these qualities predict outcomes 40 years later to predict who's happily married 40 years later? And it turned out that they measured, you know, tens of variables, tens, 40 very different variables. One variable, one successfully predicted marital outcomes over 40 years. And it was, drum roll please, <laughs> it was how people handle their negative feelings. And that turned out to be crucial because, and, 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 and there's been lots of research since then that is substantiated and reinforced this finding that a really important quality that affects how intimate relationships unfold is how a person manages their own negative emotions. A quality that sometimes people call it neuroticism. Some people, sometimes people call it negative affectivity. But if you look around, people vary in whether they feel negative intensely or mildly, whether when they feel bad, they feel bad for a long time or a short time, whether they sort of recover from bad emotions, from, from negative distressful feelings. And in an intimate relationship, how negativity is managed turns out to be really important. And you can understand why. So uh, in that case, so, let, so let's say, so you have a, a couple different scenarios here. Suppose, okay, so if you're someone that is, uh, that already has these skills in terms of dealing with negative emotions. So that, that we already know that's a, a good target for a, a potential partner. Yeah. Um, what would your advice be then to, um, to I mean, does that mean that we, we have to be extra careful if we're attracted to someone that we, you know, we like 90% of their traits, but then, you know, we know that they're emotionally unstable. Like, what would you say to somebody who's, you know, kind of advancing in an intimate relationship, and they already know that this person, uh, their, their strong suit is not dealing with negative emotions? That's a really good question. And it sort of links back to that original point, which is, we don't really get to choose from a menu. You know, we find ourselves in a relationship, the relationship's kind of working, and, um, and then we discover things about our partner, but often, you know, there's forces that keep us in relationships, um, whether our partners are perfect people or not. And of course, our partners are never, never perfect people. So to answer your question, what do you do if you're in a relationship and you're like, oh, my partner doesn't manage negative emotions very well? Well, 
again, I'm, I'm, the truth is I'm not in the advice business. You know, I'm a scientist, I'm not a clinician, I'm not a practitioner, so I don't really uh, give advice. But what I, what I do, what I can say is it helps to know what you're dealing with. So if you know, if, you're, if your eyes are open and you know, oh, my partner, negative emotions is not something my partner deals with very skillfully or well, like this is, then, then, then you know your partner. And when you encounter difficult situations, you can say, oh, this is that thing my partner struggles with, which is different than saying, oh, my partner's being insensitive to me, or oh, my partner doesn't care about me. Like, those are possible interpretations that you can avoid if you just know, oh, this is something my partner struggles with. And it seems to me that it's probably more adaptive to have your eyes open and be aware and acknowledge this is a limitation. This is a, you know, something that is difficult for my partner. That's a better and more adaptive way of thinking about our partners. They have limitations as opposed to they don't care about us. They don't want to, they don't want to do what it takes to make me feel good. Right. Or turning the other, yeah, you ignore the flaws rather yeah. than go head on. That makes sense. Yeah, Either ignore or exacerbate mm -hmm. the flaws. Right. Rather than say, oh, this is because our partners are going to have limitations because we have limitations. Everyone has limitations <laughs> and uh, acknowledging them and just say, oh, yeah, this is one of those limitations. Seems like a, a good bet when you encounter it. Now, you, you've also a lot of your work has focused on how uh, life circumstances uh, can impact the trajectory of a long term relationship or, or a marriage Um what are what are some of the, what are some of the key life circumstances that that you look at in your research? So you know, we've been doing this for for decades, and um, what really started our thinking about life circumstances is that if you read the advice that's out there, if you read self help books about relationships, it's easy to get the impression that the success or failure of a relationship is all up to me. You know, if I if the relationship failed, well, I guess I didn't work hard enough. Clearly, that's just an incomplete understanding. Like, wait a minute, that can't be true. Um, because people who know everything about relationships, you know, people who are relationship scholars <laughs> don't have perfect relationships. It's not always about your skills. And some people try really, really hard and it still doesn't work out and it's not always their fault. So we've been sort of studying, wait a minute, what are all the forces outside of the couple that affects whether the relationship proceeds or whether the relationship ends. And it turns out there's a lot of those forces. You know, we've looked at, at two big ones uh, over the course of the last couple of decades. And one of them is stress. The truth is that some couples are really fortunate. And, and you, you know, some couples that things are working out for them. They've got great jobs, good support, families behind them, a rich network of friends. They like their life. Things worked out. And you know, there's all sorts of privileges people are born with that then make their lives easier. Well, guess what? When your life is easier, your intimate relationship is also easier. And perhaps you know people who are not as fortunate. People who things didn't work out, they maybe have a chronic illness or their career aspirations didn't get fulfilled or 
due to no fault of their own, they get fired for their and economic downturn affects their job. You know, COVID-19 put a lot of people out of work, not because they weren't hardworking, not because they didn't care a lot about their families, but because the economy changed right under, underneath them. Turns out that when life is hard, intimate relationships are harder. Were there any, were there any, I always like to ask uh, researchers that, that look at lots and lots of variables in this way, were there any, were there any surprising things that you found when looking at uh, circumstances and, and all the other types of, uh, of life events that might impact a relationship, perhaps something that didn't impact uh, relationship success? Well, you know, we've been surprised a lot. <laughs> a lot of things that that um, we expected to see don't always don't always work out. One of the one of the big surprises in our work and in the field generally is how difficult it is to find really clear, reliable effects of couples' behavior on their outcomes. So you you know, there's a really strong expectation and a, a strong discourse out there that. If you communicate better, your relationship will be better. Right. And you know, it makes so much sense. It feels so true. Right. Um, but what when we when you study it and you look, okay, does the way couples behave predict their outcomes over time? The evidence for that's really inconsistent. Um, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. What what we see very frequently though is that people in better relationships communicate better. In other words, the, an easy communication, an effective communication between you and your partner, turns, it looks a lot like a symptom of being in a good relationship. Interesting. As opposed to a cause. So that, that if <laughs> Go ahead. a good relationship is a foundation for effective communication, but the communication is a very small part of what makes it a good relationship. Think of all the things that your partner can do to make you feel close. Your partner can, you know, just show up when you need your partner to be there. Your partner can anticipate your need. There's a lot of things that your that your partner, you know, like raises a child with you, or your partner, you know, he get, soothes your brow when you're sick. Mm-hmm. None of those things involve communication directly. And so the way that couples talk about a problem, which again is the focus of so much therapy and so much self-help, turns out to to a large degree, something that um, follows from a good relationship. So saying that uh, that communication to use is more of an outcome of a of a healthy relationship. That gives me a wildly cynical thought, which is that does does that mean that intervening in a bad relationship by giving people communication, better communication skills in some sort of workshop setting, does that mean that that, that is, uh, that's, that's the wrong way to approach, to intervene? Well, let me, let's look at the research. So uh, over the last couple of decades, the federal government really in the early 2000s got into the business of trying to promote healthier marriages in lower income communities. Uh, the idea was that, you know, it was an anti-poverty intervention, that married couples are, are financially more stable. So if you can get people married and keep them married, that's going to be a, hell, a way of reducing poverty. Terrific. So what was the tool that they used? It was your tool that you just described, 
workshops, communication workshops for low-income couples. And they spend a lot of money on it. When I say a lot of money, I mean almost a billion dollars giving communication workshops to low-income couples. And then they follow those couples for eight years, said, well, what happened? Here's what happened. Nothing happened. Those workshops did not work. They just didn't. So you're, you're saying cynically, well, does that mean that communications workshops are not a great way to support couples? Yes, that's exactly what it means. Um, it turns out that the couples that benefit the most from those workshops are couples that you know already would have done well without the workshops. Yeah. So what, what does work? You know, like if you want to reduce divorces or help couples, what works? Well, from this perspective, what works is anything that makes life easier. Because people are highly motivated to have good marriages. Because a bad marriage is very painful and very distressing and very disruptive. So nobody wants a bad marriage. They want a good marriage. You don't have to convince people to want a good marriage. You just have to make it easier for them to do it. What makes it easier for people to have a good marriage. Flexible hours at work, someone to take care of their kids, um, su support for their medical care. Like you can think of lots of things, fairly really concrete things that make life easier for some families than for others. I've done some worse research on military families. Uh, spent a lot of time researching military families uh, in this in this vein, because military families are under a lot of stress. You know, they've got deployments. We were studying them during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. There was people, families were under a lot of stress during that period. And you know what else is true? Divorce rates in military families were and are lower than in comparable civilian families. Wait a minute, if stress is so bad, how come military families have, who are under so much stress have lower divorce rates? Well, there's, there, we can only speculate about the answer, but the, the answer that we speculate is, is the answer is that the military provides a lot of support for military families. They get a, extra pay during deployment. They get uh, housing subsidies they, to, to live off base if, you have, if you're raising a family. The um, military has the best health care of any employer in the United States, the best child care of any employer in the United States. So, and of course, if you're in the military, you're guaranteed employed. You're not going to be fired. Right. So you've got a steady income, employment, support for medical care and child care and housing. And surprise, surprise, families that have that support are able to endure a lot of stress and still manage to stay together. I'm not saying military families don't suffer from stress. They do, of course. But relative to civilians, they're doing okay, in, even in the face of that stress. Civilians don't get all those benefits. Right. But you might imagine what would happen to American families if they did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it brings up, you know, some interesting political questions. Obviously, you know, sometimes in, in this sort of conversation about psychology, it kind of bleeds over into politics. Um, saying that is, is kind of interesting. I'm curious as to, um, you know, if you, if you assume that, you know, political conservatives who are, who generally speaking, talk a lot more about the importance of marriage than I would say liberals in general. Um, I wonder what their reaction would be if they found out 
that one of these key factors in terms of helping marriage over time is sort of a, a, a liberal view of economics, right? Of, of this a little bit more support for, for families. I, I agree with you, Ryan, that this research, all social science research has political implications. Um, it, it would be naive to think otherwise. The questions that we ask are inherently political. You know, our, our values inform what kind of questions we ask, what kind of research we ask, what kind of research we conduct. And, and I'm, I'm you know, not shy about talking about the political implications of this work. And they are that if, you, if anybody who speaks sincerely about valuing families and promoting families should be asking these broad questions about what are the circumstances that support families. If you care about families as a social issue, if you want families to be stronger, what really does the trick? And there has been a tradition in this country of saying to families, what you should work harder. It's your fault. It, and, and if you get divorced, well, you, you, you didn't do something right. And uh, increasingly the evidence from my lab and other people's lab is that that's incomplete. There's a lot of things we can do as a society to be more family friendly. Uh, we're a society that's friendly to lots to, to, to business in lots of ways. Um, we can be friendlier to families. We can be more supportive of families. And I think that a lot of political debates about specific issues that don't feel like family issues, debates about the minimum wage, debates right. about healthcare, debates about um, um, employment protection, about a universal basic income. Like, like all of these ideas are discussed as if they are purely economic proposals. But every one of them has implications for families, every one of them. And I, I would be in favor of analyses that really articulate exactly what the implications for families are. And you know, there are, there are ways of quantifying or at least predicting how much can we reduce the divorce rate with any of these policies. Um, you know, in, I live in California. In California, when there's a ballot measure on the ballot, there's always an environmental impact statement. That's just the part of the law now that every right. law has, even if there's no, like the, even if there's no impact from the environment, it says, well, the environmental impact analysis is there's no impact on the environment, fine. Why don't we have a family impact statement? That every policy, well, what's the impact on families gonna be? Are you gonna, healthcare? What's the impact on families going to be? Raise taxes, lower taxes. What's the impact on families? And that's an analysis that's worth doing if we care about families. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Uh, now, you you mentioned the the uh, looking at military families, which um, you know makes me think of all the different uh, cross cultural uh, effects that you might see. So, you if you're studying these marriages. Uh, and which can vary by, you know, race, eth ethnicity, socioeconomic status, all, all these other variables in the mix. Um, what, are, what are some of the things that you found in terms of what's similar across groups that doesn't really matter versus something that's very different from group to group? Sure. <clears throat> um, my own work has focused on marriages in the United States. And um, the 
group differences, the cultural difference I'm interested in is differences across socioeconomic status. So a lot of research, you know, historically on intimate relationships has been conducted on populations that are easily accessible to researchers. So researchers tend to be at universities. So a lot of these research, a lot of the research has been done on college educated couples, mostly white couples, mostly middle-class to upper middle-class couples. So 90% of my field studies a very narrow slice of couples, white, upper middle-class college educated couples, which, you know, most of the United States doesn't go to college. Only 40% of the, of the country ever attends college. So 60% of the country don't get touched. Right. Some of the research we've done tries to repl- tries to address this problem. So we've studied couples that are explicitly recruited from poor neighborhoods, neighborhoods where, where the uh, um, household income is within 200% of the poverty line, and then compare them to couples from more affluent backgrounds and neighborhoods. And what we find is everybody wants the same things. If you ask people, what are you looking for? Everybody wants a partner who is close, a relationship that is both exciting and safe. Someone, they, everyone wants a safe long-term relationship to raise healthy kids. I mean, th- there's no right, differences right. there. And that's, that's cross-culturally true. Everybody, everywhere wants a close, safe connection with another person. That said, there do seem to be differences in how people get there. That culture, and it turns out socioeconomic status affect how people reach their goals. And one thing we found is that some sort of communication patterns, back to communication, that look like they're gonna be real similar for everybody actually have different implications. So a communication pattern that's very famous in my field (laughs) is called the demand withdraw pattern. The demand withdraw pattern is is a pattern that happens with couples where one person wants something to change and the other person doesn't want something to change. So one person keeps asking, demanding, and the person who doesn't want to give in says, I'm going to withdraw from this conversation, which means the demander has to demand even more and the withdrawer has to withdraw more and it, it sort of exacerbates itself. And it's, it's a problem. It, it's a, a relation. It's a, it's a, a pattern that is associated with relationships that aren't doing so great. And it's, it, it, it goes back to a lot of the work on conflict resolution, right? These models 100%. of conflict resolution where um, people have different tendencies and, and, but what you're saying is that this is kind of a, this is a specifically a situation where you have yes. the demander and the, and, and, the um, the withdrawer. the withdrawer, right, right, who's avoiding the conflict or or pulling away, right? And in 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 most research, it show most research shows that if someone's making a demand, and it's often the wife making the demand, when the husband withdraws, that's not great for the relationship. It's associated with a less happy relationship, and you can understand why she's making a demand by withdrawing. He's saying, "I don't care enough about your needs. I'm not willing." to do what you're asking me. Mm-hmm. That same pattern in lower income couples, um, you, get different, you get a different f- effect. It turns out that when wives make demands in lower income couples, husband's withdrawal is associated with better relationships. Wow. Uh, and we found that in two studies. And, 
and it was very surprising. And the question is, why would that be true? And one reason that we uh, think about is that there's a big difference between a couple where one partner is making a demand that could be fulfilled versus a demand that for institutional reasons, for economic reasons, can't be fulfilled. Interesting. So you imagine if I'm an affluent couple and my wife says, you know, do something, I'm like, well, I don't want to. That's not great for the relationship. But if my wife says, do something, and I say, I cannot, I'm not able to, um, that might actually be better for the relationship than engaging and saying, you know, here's why you're wrong. Here's why you don't get to get what you want. That if I'm prevented from, if, if it's through no fault of my own, from, from doing something I'm asked to do because of economic challenges or because of institutional racism or what have you, it turns out that disengaging in that moment might actually be adaptive or seems to be adaptive as opposed to engaging, trying to argue the point. So and that's an example of, of these of differences, how you know, pretty basic communication patterns can have different implications in different kinds of um, socioeconomic statuses. So the, was there any looking into the, uh, the sort of style of the demand, like in terms of the, 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 the method that was asked of these types of, of uh, demands? In, in this study, we didn't. In this okay. study, we were, because there is a tradition of research that says that merely making that demand and withdrawing in the face of it, like that, that connection across people is um, the, a specific pattern that's been studied a lot. So we didn't look at the, <clears throat> the quality of the demand. I see. Yeah, I, I see where you're going, Ryan, and I think you're right that, of course, there's nicer and less nice ways of making a request from your partner. Well, well okay, so while, while we're on the topic of these uh, sort of interaction patterns within sure. the relationship, let's, let's take a step away from these sort of external life circumstances and go sure. into, into the relationship, I know one of the terms that, that you use in your research is interaction patterns, Absolutely. right? Interaction patterns. Absolutely. Are there other types of, uh, aside from this kind of demand withdrawal, these scenarios, um, uh, are there other types of interaction patterns that are associated with success or, or rather the opposite? <clears throat> I mean, there are. There, there, this research is research that lots of people have done for decades. And uh, the way they've done it traditionally is you bring in couples that are either struggling in their relationship or they're very happy. And uh, you can bring them into the lab and videotape them. And you ask them before you videotape them, we'd like you to talk about something that you disagree about. And so the question is how do couples disagree? And um, that research started in the late 70s. So there's, a, there's a really a tradition here of this research. And in the late 70s, the first thing they discover is, oh my goodness, um, couples who are struggling are more negative <laughs> with each other. They say more negative things to each other than couples that are not struggling. And you know, that's not gonna be a surprise to anyone. Yeah, I think in, in pop psychology, there's sort of this sure. 80, 80, 20 kind of rule where if, as long as 80% of the interactions are positive, that's a, supposed to lead to long. I mean, you know, this is. Yeah, I don't hold a lot of stock in that specific number. Right, right, right. But if, if the advice is try to be nice to your partner, I'm down with that. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting when you look at these videos <clears throat> is that people have 
explored some more nuanced um, descriptions of what it is that couples who are struggling are struggling with. And one distinction that, that for me carries a lot of weight and uh, I found very insightful is a distinction between people who approach their conflicts horizontally versus vertically. And what do I mean by that? When, when you and I disagree, we can, some of our disagreements are vertical. And what, the, what it means by vertical is there's a right answer and a wrong answer. Okay. And there really okay. is one. So if we, we disagree about the, what's the capital of Portugal? You know, there is a rare, there's an answer. And if I'm wrong, you can say like, look, you're just wrong. It's Lisbon. And I'm like, no, it isn't. Yes, it is. It just is. <clears throat> so that's a vertical conflict. One of us is right and one of us is wrong. But many, many conflicts that couples have are not vertical conflicts. Right. They're horizontal conflicts. So if, if we're going to go to lunch and you're like, I want to go to Chinese. And I'm like, oh, I like Italian. None, none of, neither of us is wrong. We just want different things. So here's what happens if you watch these tapes is that couples are almost always in horizontal conflict. They want different things, but they're treating it like a vertical conflict. What I want is the right thing. Mm -hmm. And what you want is hopelessly wrong. And this is a problem. So, um, if I'm trying to convince you, no, Chinese food is bad. You don't want Chinese food. It's bad for you. But Italian food, that's the right food to want. It's much healthier, Mediterranean diet. Well, you're like, no, no, no. Chinese food, Chinese food is great. And then now we're, now we're having a debate. And no one likes to be in a debate because even if you win, you lose because you're, you've made your partner lose. No one wants that. Um, and of course, yeah. couples have these horizontal conflicts about sex. Like, oh, I think... The amount of sex I want to have is the right amount of sex. The amount of sex you want to have is either too much or too little. And I'm trying to convince you that you're wrong. And you're trying to convince me that I'm wrong. Yeah, well, it, re it really speaks yeah. to expectations. This, uh, some, uh, yeah, you're, basically what you're saying is sometimes people, they, they interpret their own expectations as the target. It's, as reality. That, that is the objective yeah, the objective target is my personal expectation through past experiences. It's interesting. Well, you can think about why that's true because if I want, let's say I want something and I want to get what I want. If, if you want something different and we both have totally valid preferences, I might not get what I want because I've, I, because if you have a different preference and it's also valid, like, oh man, Maybe you're going to get what you want and I'm not going to get what I want. But if my preference is the right preference, then I'm going to get what I want if I can just convince you of the rightness of my preference. But of course, that often doesn't work. Nobody wants to be convinced of anything. So what happy couples do, and it's not easy, is to say, oh, wait, what I want is valid, but what you want is also valid, even though it's different. So now... What you and I have to do is negotiate. Okay, who's going to get their way this time? And you know, if we were disagreeing about where to go to lunch, we would negotiate. We'd be like, oh, well, let's see. How about this time we go my way, next time we go your way? Or maybe we'll do a third way that is sort of halfway between what either of us want. But with, with, in relationships, often it's hard to find that space. 
where both partners disagree and are also accepted at the same time. Like, oh yeah, I want this amount of sex and you want a different amount and we're both right. How are we gonna compromise? Or I wanna go to my mom's, you wanna go to, you, you wanna spend the holiday at my family, I'm gonna spend the holiday somewhere else, which is it gonna be? Like these negotiations go better if they're approached as two valid people trying to negotiate as opposed to a debate where one person's right. And this right. is, this is you know, something you see a lot. Uh, so let's talk about a, a, another dimension within uh, a relationship over time. It's something that I'm personally very interested in, which is the amount of, of time that you spend with your partner on a weekly basis. I, you know, it seems to me that, that, that much like with other types of stimuli, you can get oversaturated with a partner. You know, it's kind of the idea of, you know, if, if I want to, if you like pancakes and that's your favorite food, I can very easily make you dislike pancakes. And the way I would do that is by making you eat, eat it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. And so I'm curious if you've come across anything in the, in the, in the research that uh, talks about whether or not uh, that, that, that's, that phenomenon can happen in, in, a, in an intimate relationship. So this is really interesting. You know, we've, first of all, it's a really timely issue, right? Because with COVID and the lockdowns, lots of people have been spending more time together than they've ever spent together in their lives. And what are the effects of that? The answer to that question ties together the two things we've talked about so far, which is there's external circumstances that affect it, and there's internal qualities that affect it. So when you say, uh, you're going to hate pancakes if I serve it to you every day, well, that happens to be true of me. I wouldn't want to eat pancakes every day. But you know, Ryan, some people would be fine eating pancakes every day. Like there are people in the world who are like, oh, I, don't, I, I don't mind eating pancakes every single day. I eat the same lunch every day. That's what I eat. That's not my style, but it is some people's style. Well, it's the same thing, I think, in this situation of COVID, that some people, first of all, there's an individual difference. Some people love being with their partner all the time. Some people need a little space, and that's not a reflection on their relationship. It's just different styles of intimacy. Right. And, and, and so then there's different, some people, when they have to be with their partner, have a multi a multi room home that's very comfortable. Where even though we're both home, I can get space. I have my own space. You have your own space. Some people live in a studio apartment that's that's where there's nowhere to escape. There's no privacy at all. You can imagine how those two things might interact. So when people have to spend a lot of time together because of the COVID shutdown, or you know if there's ever another shutdown. Some people are gonna love that because they're comfortable being really close. They love closeness and they're in an environment where that closeness is it's also comfortable. It's physically comfortable. Mm -hmm. Some people are gonna hate that either because of their personal style because they're like, look, I, I need a little space. Like I need a little distance and I need to talk to some other people in my life. And I don't get, I'm not satisfied only having your pancakes for breakfast every morning. And some people are gonna find it hard because the physical environment where they're doing that is distracting, is unsafe, is uncomfortable. And that makes it, it makes it less rewarding 
to be with this person all the time. So I think that time spent together is a hugely interesting issue, even outside of COVID, right? Because some people have jobs that make them out of the house a lot. Some people have jobs where they can be home a lot. So the, the um, it, it sounds like what you're saying is compatibility is, is extremely important in the sense of like, it's, it's not so much that you have one preference uh, you can be on one kind of extreme. And as long as your partner is compatible with that preference, it, it can lead to long-term success. So do you think that, uh, that this, this finding that this, this compatibility that you see, does that mean that, that when we, when we're choosing our partner for, uh, for marriage, that it's, that we should be uh, we should be focusing on like trying to be very, very picky about to make sure we're compatible about all these all these types of situations that may arise, whether it's, you know, we're, we're on the same page when it comes to our, our attitudes about conflict. We're on the same page about social time and, and, and how much time we should spend together. Do we have is it is it extremely, extremely important that we uh, that we have these high standards when when choosing our mates? Well, uh, it's a great question. You'd think so because you know you do have to get along with somebody. So doesn't it make sense to pick someone that you do get along with? The word compatibility has lots of meanings though. And people think of that same English word in lots of ways. And, and a lot of people think of compatibility as something fixed, something chemical that, oh, when I meet you, we're either compatible or we're not. So I should find someone that I'm compatible with because we either are or we aren't, it's like a switch. And yet my sense is that's actually not how compatibility works because people can adjust and they do adjust. The truth is there is nobody who's, unless you're an identical twin and even then there's nobody who's identical to you. There's nobody in the world that wants exactly what you want at the exact same time that you want it. So no matter who your partner is, you're gonna disagree about things. You, you might have a lot of similar preferences, but you don't have all similar preferences because preferences for what? Preferences for clothing, furniture, vacations, food, TV, movies, books, spare time, ch child raising. We have a, a countless hundreds and hundreds of preferences. Whatever partner I have, I'm gonna agree about some of them. I'm gonna disagree. How about others? That's just a fact. There's no, there's, so there's no point to pick a partner that I agree with about everything because we won't agree about everything. And the longer we stay together with our partner, you know, eventually we're gonna come across the disagreement, the thing we disagree about. So what does it mean to be compatible? Well, it means that whatever your similarities and differences are, you can negotiate them well. What I would say to a child, what I would say to my child, if my child ever asked me, uh, what should I look for in a partner? And I'm certain that my child will not ask me this question, but <laughs> if my child did, I would say, find yourself a partner that you can disagree with, cause you're gonna. So that the nature of that disagreement is gonna be vital to your life. It, it's easy to like someone that you agree with, or it's easy to like someone when you agree. 
So that's not the hard part. That's not where the test of the relationship is. If you are having a good time when you're on vacation at the beach, that's easy. I can have a good time with lots of people on vacation at the beach. The question is, can we stay connected when we disagree? That's what compatibility is in my view, is the ability to manage disagreement well. Because you're going to disagree. Mm-hmm. So the task isn't find someone that you're so similar to that you'll never disagree because that person doesn't exist. The question is find someone that you can disagree with well. So as we wrap up, let's, let's focus on, on some practical ideas uh, yeah. for, for maintaining success in a relationship over time. Uh, I know a lot of your work is also centered around sort of how marriage will change uh, over time. Yeah. Um, could you kind of maybe, maybe tie into how marriages change over time, some practical tips for what, what could, uh, what could, or what's associated with long-term relationship success? Sure. So, you know, we've talked about how a lot of things that are associated with long-term relationship success are things that are out of our control. Right. So, you know, our own personalities matter and our partner's personalities matter. And you're not going to change that. Our circumstances matter, matter a lot. And often we can't change that. Now, sometimes we can, you know, if someone offers you that great new job that that's going to cost you a lot of time that you could spend at home, the advantages of the job are hey, lots of maybe a higher income and that's terrific, but there are costs too. And people I think would be well advised to pay attention to those costs. So then we've got this third bucket of what are the actions I can take that make myself, that, that can make us more connected, keep us more connected over time. And uh, there are actions that we can take. That there, we don't control everything, but we do control some things. So one thing is, and it sounds trite, but it's true, is invest in the relationship. So people make choices. You know, how am I going to spend my time? How am I going to spend my free time? And uh, at the end of a long, tired day, I can spend it watching TV. I can spend it going through the internet. I can spend it talking to my partner. I can spend it asking my partner how my partner's day went. And it's easy in the hustle and bustle of our busy lives to think, oh, I'm investing in my retirement fund. I got to invest in my retirement fund because I need money when I'm old. And I'm going to go to the gym. I got to go to the gym because I want to be healthy when I'm old. But what investment did you make in your relationship today? You got to invest in your relationship because you're going to want to be close to your partner when you're old. Right. And yet, I, I often that's not at the top of the list. I got to put money. I put money away for retirement. I, I go to the gym, but I didn't necessarily invest in my relationship each and every day. Now, that is something we can control. I could think. And I, I hope, I hope our uh, saying that it, it kind of makes me think about how just our cultures changed uh, over the past 50 years in terms of it kind of feels like uh, delayed, you know, investing in a relationship, investing in your retirement. Those are those are uh, those are things that sometimes don't have an immediate payoff. They, 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 they can be long term investments. I'm curious as to if you think that uh, that as our culture become in the U.S. at least be, becomes uh, it becomes harder and harder to delay gratification. 
uh, with all the technology around, I'm curious as to if you think that interacts with our ability to maintain relationships. Oh, I, I think it does, but I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't blame people for not delaying gratification. I would say, you know, in an economy that is insecure, it's harder to put money away for retirement when I need the money now. Right. Um, it's harder to go to the gym when I'm exhausted and I need to work many, many hours just to, just to pay my bills. And so I also think it's that life is hard for lots of couples and it's at the end of everything I have to do and taking care of the kids and putting the kids to bed and getting them their clothes on. And now at the end of the day, I'm supposed to say, okay, tell me partner, how, how was your day? I mean, that's asking a lot of people because life is hard and uh, just making ends meet is a challenge for many, many American families. And I think that if, uh, and, and that's why, it, it, so it'd be easier to invest in the future if the present was easier, if the present was more safe and secure. And I think that's a reasonable goal. Well, thank you uh, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Lots of, lots of great wisdom uh, when it comes to uh, relationship uh, success. Uh, thank you again for taking time out of your day to, uh, to chat. Ryan, thanks for having me. Ben, visit his faculty page at psych.ucla.edu. That's P-S-Y-C-H July marked the one-year anniversary of launching Why Do We Do That? Thank you so much to everyone that has tuned in this past year. I'm looking forward to more discussions and expanding our listener base. Speaking of which, be sure to follow the Why Do We Do That Facebook page for updates and additional content. Don't forget to rate and write a review on iTunes. Follow on Instagram at Why Do We Do That Podcast or Twitter at WDWDTPod. Feel free to email me at Why Do We Do That Podcast at gmail.com. And please share an episode with a friend if you feel so inclined. Word of mouth is a great way to help generate new listeners. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer, hoping you found some answers to the question, why do we do that? <laughs>